The following sermon was preached at Liberty Baptist Church. We exist to showcase the glory of God by being and making disciples of Jesus. To learn more about us, please visit our website at lbcliberty.org. Good morning and Merry Christmas. As I told the first service, we have 11 more days of Christmas if I'm doing my math right. So, If you will, uh, keep your Bibles open to Isaiah 52. We'll pick up in just a moment in verse 13. Before we do that, though, I'd like to share with you a story from a 1997 edition of the Chicago Tribune. There was a parachute instructor named Michael Costello who jumped out of an airplane at 12,000 feet with a novice skydiver named Gareth Griffith. So one would think this to be an exciting time, but when Gareth, the novice, pulled his ripcord for the parachute, the parachute failed to open. Plummeting to the ground, they both faced certain death because this was their only parachute. This, let me say, is why I never, ever want to go skydiving. The risk is not worth the reward. And so then the instructor in this moment does something truly remarkable. Just before they hit the ground, he rolls over so that he would hit the ground first and the novice would land on top of him. Unfortunately, the instructor was killed instantly, but the novice only fractured his spine in the fall, was not paralyzed, and more importantly, was not dead. One man gave his life for another. One man took the brunt for another. One substitutes himself so that another may live. And so it was at the cross when Jesus died in our place. He took the brunt that we deserved. For most people, Christmas is a special time of year for a variety of reasons. We love drinking hot chocolate and eating candy canes. We love getting cozy by the fire, except in 2021. We love the good food, savory and sweet, our Christmas movies, our Christmas music, though some too much and some too little. We love our Christmas traditions. We love the shine of Christmas lights. But if you're a bit lazier like me with your decorations, maybe the air of a Christmas inflatable. We love snow. We love time spent with family. We love giving gifts and we love getting gifts. But as Christians during this time of year, we should most love to reflect on the gift that God has given us in Jesus Christ. We should love to reflect on the true meaning of Christmas. I'm so thankful for what Pastor Nathan told us last week in his sermon. It stuck with me all week, and I've prayed through this multiple times in recent days, that my family would not waste Christmas. The Son of God became incarnate as a baby born to a virgin. And for what purpose? Well, Shane and Shane in their song, Born to Die, actually tell us the purpose in a beautiful way. When the babe was born in a manger on the hay, God saw a veil torn, he saw Good Friday. He was born to die, gold laid before the Christ, incense his presence sweet, and myrrh to signify. Victory over death's sting, he was born to die. It came in a dream to Joseph late one night that Herod sought the king but could not take his life. We came here today to celebrate his birth, but let us not forget why Jesus came to earth. He was born to die. As a father of two now and a third on the way, I've been thinking about this often this Christmas season as Mary looked into the eyes of her baby son, Jesus Christ, baby hands and baby feet that would one day be pierced for your transgressions. 
a baby's head that would one day wear a crown of thorns. And we find in Scripture that this was God's plan from before time began. And in our text, Isaiah makes that clear for us. When we read Isaiah 52.10, right before our text, we actually take notice of God's great plan. The Lord has displayed his holy arm in the sight of all the nations. All the ends of the earth will see the salvation of our God. The Lord has bared his arm and showed his power, and so all the nations in this earth will see the salvation of God. God's people are hearing this at a time where they're facing trials and sufferings, but there's a promise that they will be saved, and actually all the nations of the earth saved with them. But we're left asking how. What will happen? When will it happen? And at whose hand? Those are the answers we're looking for as we read this text together. In Isaiah 52 through 53, Jesus is the one talked about. Remember the story of the Ethiopian eunuch in Acts chapter 8. He asked Philip while he's reading this text, about whom, I ask you, does the prophet say this, about himself or about someone else? And Philip goes on to tell him, quote, the good news about Jesus. Now, when we read Acts 8, the content of what Philip tells this man isn't described in any great detail. So if I'm to do anything this morning, my aim is to tell you what I might have told the Ethiopian eunuch if he had asked me the same question about this passage. Who is this passage talking about, and what is the point of Isaiah 52 through 53? Who is this pointing us to? And very simply, we see in this passage that Jesus is the one who was sent for our salvation. Here's why Jesus was born. Here's why Jesus came, so that you could be saved. And it's important this morning that we would notice the manner in which Jesus comes to us. It's not begrudgingly like, I guess i got to go save some people now since they can't save themselves. But he also doesn't do it in a boastful manner as if to say, look what I'm doing for you people. Look and see how great I am. Rather, and astonishingly, Jesus comes humbly as a servant, willfully ready to give himself for us so that we could be saved. So this morning, we're actually going to look at four ways in which Jesus came to us. It's not just significant that he did come, but it is significant in the way in which he came. And here is the first. Jesus came to us in humility. Jesus came to us in humility. Let's pick up in Isaiah 52, starting in verse 13. See, my servant will act wisely. He will be raised and lifted up and highly exalted. So Isaiah starts and says, Jesus will certainly come. He's going to act wisely. He will be successful, as your version of the scriptures may say. And he would eventually be exalted, high and lifted up, seen as glorious before all the earth. So whenever we read a text like that, we, we kind of are reading into it and expecting this guy, Jesus, to look the part. Wouldn't it be obvious if Jesus is supposed to be glorious, wouldn't people be able to look at him and tell that he's glorious? Obviously, that's what most artists today believe when they depict what Jesus must have looked like. Not that we should get into this game, but we do anyway. And so Jesus has been depicted as white with long flowing hair and blue or green eyes. Sometimes he's a tall, buff, tan guy. He's someone who had access to a blow dryer and a curling iron, it seems. Often, Jesus has highlighted tips, 
So Jesus was around in the early 2000s. Looks like his eyebrows have been waxed or maybe even that he has a nice thick beard with perfect trimming somehow around the neck. So, so you would look at these images of Jesus and think, this guy could be a part-time model. And this is what our culture at large assumes of Jesus, Christian and non-Christian alike. We might even say that some of us think this is how Jesus was supposed to look. Why, why is that? Why is Jesus depicted this way? Is it because this Jesus looks perfect, maybe? He looks glorious, and it's what we would expect of God in the flesh? But it's, it's not what happens, according to Isaiah, as he comments on the Christ to come. Listen to verses 14 and then going into 15 in the next chapter. It says in verse 14, Just as there were many who were appalled at him, his appearance was so disfigured beyond that of any human being, and his form marred beyond human likeness. So, so we start here at the end almost of Christ's life on earth, this being a reference to how disfigured Christ became when he went to the cross. His appearance so marred, so messed up, that it's hard to even tell that he was a human. And so we look at that event and we say, is this really the glorious one spoken of in Isaiah 52? Verse 15 says that with his blood, his bloodshed, he will sprinkle many nations. Kings will shut their mouths because of him. For what they were not told, they will see, and what they have not heard, they will understand. Kings shutting their mouth in awe of his humiliation. They're in awe not of how glorious and good Jesus looked, but they're in awe of how terrible he looked. Ray Ortland describes it this way. In his passion, Jesus was beaten into a shockingly inhuman mass of wounded flesh. And so he would sprinkle many nations to make them clean. Kings representing those nations would shut their mouths, awed by his wretched humiliation and his exalted glory, revealed uniquely in the gospel. Jesus' glory seen in humiliation. When we read the narrative of Jesus' crucifixion in each of the four Gospels, we get some idea of how terrible of a day this must have been for him physically speaking. And this is why Jesus was made incarnate as a babe. He was born to be wounded for us. He was born to die. But if we keep reading in this text, we see more of Jesus' humility in his appearance but actually before the crucifixion takes place. Isaiah 53, 1 through 2 says, Who has believed our message, and to whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed? He grew up before him like a tender shoot and like a root out of dry ground. He had no beauty or majesty to attract us to him, nothing in his appearance that we should desire him. So Isaiah asked in 53, To whom was God's power revealed? Who would know that this is the glorious one to come? He's asking this question because it wouldn't be obvious as to who Jesus was. Reason being is that he would come to be just like one of us. Like you, like me, he takes on human flesh. But this verse also says that Jesus had no form, no majesty, no beauty. He wasn't desirable. He wasn't our society's expectation of marriage material. This, this doesn't sound like the good-looking model portrayed in most depictions of Jesus today. No form, no majesty, no beauty that would have made him obvious or wanted. 
This seems very strange to us reading that someone so glorious would seem so unglorious. As surprising as it may sound, the Bible actually leads us to believe that Jesus was outwardly unimpressive. BBC News put out an article a few years ago based on the historical research of some to show what Jesus may have actually looked like. They believe they've been able to give the most accurate portrayal of Jesus, and this is by no means canon or 100% certain, but I encourage you to look up the BBC article because it is thought-provoking that Jesus was actually Middle Eastern, with dark eyes, likely short, not long, flowing, wavy hair, but more of a bowl cut, a beard, yes, but likely thinned out and certainly not perfectly groomed. As Philippians 2.7 says, it was humbling at all that Jesus would even take on human flesh, emptying himself by assuming the form of a servant. But Jesus takes it a step further, it seems, in being a human who had no form, majesty, or beauty. And let's not think only about physical appearance. Isaiah 53.3 says about Jesus that he was despised, rejected by mankind, a man of suffering, familiar with pain. Like one from whom people hide their faces, we held him in low esteem. So outwardly unimpressive, despised and rejected man, he wouldn't have been voted most attractive or most popular. And it's not that people didn't like him once they got to know him, but sim people simply would not have cared about him had he never said the things he said or done the things that he did. Isaiah says he has sorrows and griefs like us. He was like one you would never even think to pay attention to, one that you would turn your face away from as you looked at him. Jesus truly did come to us in the most humble way possible. He came to us in humility, and we should not miss that fact. But second, Jesus came to us in service. Jesus came to us in service. And what I mean is this. Jesus ultimately came to serve you and to serve me. For the triune God's glory, yes, but nonetheless, how does he glorify God? How does he glorify himself? It's actually through his service to us. He was a suffering servant. Isaiah 53, 4 says, Surely he took up our pain and bore our suffering. So not only does Jesus have his own problems to bear, but he also carried our griefs and our sorrows. Yet, Isaiah says, we considered him punished by God, stricken by him, and afflicted. God is punishing him, so the assumption might be that Jesus deserves what he is getting. He is smitten, struck, and afflicted by God, but why does God punish Jesus? Does Jesus do something wrong? Did Jesus deserve this? Of course he didn't. We read verse 5 to get that answer. He was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. The punishment that brought us peace was on him, and by his wounds we are healed. Pierced for our transgressions, crushed for our iniquities, his punishment for our peace, his wounds for our healing. Do you notice the exchange taking place here? Here's what Jesus gets. Piercing, crushing, punishment, wounds. And here's what we get. Peace and healing. Guys, what a deal. How sad it is to know that at one time in our lives, we were actively rejecting this deal. 
How much more sad is it to know that there are still people out there actively rejecting this deal? And even more sad than that, that there are some people in this world who have yet to hear about this deal. That Jesus might receive our punishment so that we would get peace and healing. Let me take a moment here and just say, as I will later, that if you have rejected this deal, the members of Liberty Baptist Church would love nothing more than to talk to you about what it would mean to receive this deal in faith. We would love to talk to you more about Jesus Christ and why it's worth it for you to place your faith in him. When this sermon ends and the benediction is over, that is why we will stick around to talk to you about Jesus, to talk to one another about Jesus and what he is doing in our lives. So what exactly did we do for Jesus to deserve this, to take on our punishment as we receive peace and healing? What did we do for Jesus to have to come in our place to be punished? Verse 6 explains it very simply. We all, like sheep, have gone astray. Each of us has turned to our own way. It reminds us of Romans 3.23, that all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. We have all went our own way, every one of us, like sheep without a shepherd. We are very stupid and helpless. Not the two traits you want to hear to describe yourself, and yet, without Christ, we are compared to sheep time and time again who do not have a shepherd guiding them. And so verse 6 ends this way. The Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. Our immoral behavior, all of our unrighteous deeds, all of our unholy works, our sin, it goes to Jesus. I mean, it'd be enough for him to have to take all of my sin, but to think that he takes the sin of every one of his people who have ever lived. Paul declares this in 2 Corinthians 5.21 when he says that God made the one who did not know sin to be sin for us. This was the only way for you and me to be saved. How thankful we should be that Jesus came to us in service. But third, Jesus also came to us in submission. He came in humility. He came in service. And Jesus came to us in submission. Jesus did what he did willingly. Verse 7, he was oppressed and afflicted, yet he did not open his mouth. He was led like a lamb to the slaughter, and as a sheep before its shearers is silent, so he did not open his mouth. Jesus Christ was oppressed and afflicted for our sins, having done nothing wrong himself, yet he would never say a word to it. Really think about that. Jesus had the power to do whatever he wanted to do. We're talking about the man who turned water into wine, who walked on water, healed the blind, fed 5,000 with five loaves and two fish. He's made the lame walk. He's raised the dead to life. If he wanted to end this quickly, he could have. Yet he came like a lamb, innocent, submissive, no complaining. When John the Baptist first sees Jesus in John 1.29, he says, Behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. Like a sheep gone to be sheared as silent, so Jesus was willfully going to the cross on our behalf. He knew this had to be done. He had come to do his Father's will. Verse 8 says, By oppression and judgment he was taken away. Yet who of his generation protested? 
He was cut off from the land of the living for the transgression of my people. He was punished. Guys, our Savior, Jesus Christ, was brought before the people like a criminal in court. The people, able to free whoever they wanted to, chose to free Barabbas the murderer instead of the innocent God-man, Jesus Christ. And Isaiah asked, very simply, who considered what they were doing? Did any of them know what was going on? Jesus somewhat answers that for us in Luke 23 when he says, Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. They didn't understand that they were crucifying the Son of God, their Messiah. But even more than that, they didn't understand that they were crucifying him ultimately for the transgression of his people. And what's crazy to think about is that some crucifying him were doing so so that that very crucifixion would cover the sin of crucifying him. Isn't that astonishing? Again, some of these people are crucifying him so that that very crucifixion would cover the sin of crucifying him. What a mystery and wonder the gospel is. Isaiah 53, 9 reads, He was assigned a grave with the wicked and with the rich in his death, though he had done no violence, nor was any deceit in his mouth. Jesus wasn't just punished. He wasn't just beaten. He wasn't just hit a few times. He was ultimately killed. He was put to death for the things that you and I have stupidly and selfishly done. The lie you told this week, it was for that. When you lusted looking after another man or woman in a way that you should not, it was for that. For all the times you disrespected your parents growing up, it was for that. When you said something hurtful, it was for that. When you gossiped about someone else, it was for that. That's how terrible our sins are. The perfect, innocent, sinless God-man had to be punished as an offering for our sin. He had to die in our place, but he did it willingly. He wanted to do it. As, as Paul says in Philippians 2.8, Jesus humbles himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. When you read of this crucifixion event and you read of the fact that Jesus was born to die and that he was moving there throughout the New Testament, understand that this was done in humility and willingly for you. Jesus came to us in submission, but thankfully, fourth and last, Jesus came to us in victory. Jesus came to us in victory. In verse 10, Isaiah assures us that this was all God's will. He was not surprised as he looks down and sees what's happening to Jesus Christ. That verse reads, Yet it was the Lord's will to crush him and cause him to suffer. Acts 2.23, Peter puts it this way. This Jesus was delivered up according to the definite plan and foreknowledge of God. Can I just take a moment here and point out how Isaiah and Peter's words about this have import for us today? My my goal here is to be as pastoral and kind as possible about the truth of God's sovereignty in suffering. Can you imagine a greater suffering than being perfect, sinless, obedient, and to still face persecution, suffering, beatings, mockery, shame, and death like Jesus did? Yet what does Isaiah say? It was the Lord's will to crush him and cause him to suffer. What does Peter say, affirming it, 
he was delivered up according to the definite plan of God. I know that Christmas time for many of you this year might not bring happy, joyful, and merry thoughts and feelings because I know that many of you are facing your own difficulties, trials, and sufferings right now. Many of you might even find it hard to rejoice this morning because of those sufferings and trials. And I am not here to tell you to get over it. In fact, I and the other members of this church want to mourn with you if you are in a season of mourning. We want to bear your burdens. We want to watch over you with an affectionate care. Yet there should be great comfort at the same time to know that God's plans are not, they in fact cannot be thwarted. God is in control. We who are suffering right now in life should remember at Christmas time that Jesus, too, faced great suffering at the hands of the sovereign God. But his story did not end with the cross. Resurrection was to come. And your story, if you're in Christ, will not end with the sorrows of this life. Jesus is coming again. Resurrection is coming. New life is coming. A new heaven and a new earth are coming. Our God is a victorious God, and his people will be a victorious people. One day we are going to cry out with full conviction, not saying this lackadaisically, but instead meaning it with our whole hearts. O death, where is your sting? O grave, where is your victory? The sting of death is sin, and the strength of sin is the law. But thanks be to God who gives us the victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. Jesus' body and soul was struck for us for our guilt, but Isaiah says at the end of verse 10, though the Lord makes his life an offering for sin, though Jesus dies on our behalf, he will see his offspring and prolong his days, and the will of the Lord will prosper in his hand. The story doesn't end with Christ's death. God is going to prolong his days. Jesus will come back from the dead. He will be victorious, and he will defeat death for us so that for those who believe in him, we will not have to experience eternal pain. He's not victorious just because he's alive. He is victorious because he's defeated sin and death. So that verse 11 happens for us. After he has suffered, he will see the light of life and be satisfied By his knowledge, my righteous servant will justify many, and he will bear their iniquities. Ray Ortland says, the outcome of the servant's sufferings is not regret, but the satisfaction of obvious accomplishment, our justification. Church, please remember this. Jesus, when he thinks back on the cross, does not regret what he did. There is no regret. This satisfied Jesus to die for us. The righteous one, Jesus, made a way for many from all nations to be counted as righteous. And so we come back to 2 Corinthians 5.21 and we complete it. He made the one who did not know sin to be sin for us so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. In Isaiah 53.12, therefore I will give him a portion among the great and he will divide the spoils with the strong. Because he poured out his life unto death and was numbered with the transgressors. For he bore the sin of many and made intercession for the transgressors. Jesus gets a reward for what he did and he shares that with those he died for. The conqueror shares his victory with his allies, transgressors who have been turned into friends. 
Jesus poured his soul to death. He took on our sin. He bore the sins of many, and now he defends us as our Savior. He basically hands us a gold medal that we did nothing to earn, and we too, with Christ, are declared holy, righteous, and victorious. Stuart Townsend wrote one of the most glorious songs the church has ever sang as he describes this victory that we can only experience in Christ alone. There in the ground his body lay, light of the world by darkness slain. Then bursting forth in glorious day, up from the grave he rose again. And as he stands in victory, sin's curse has lost its grip on me. For I am his and he is mine, bought with the precious blood of Christ. He came to you humbly, in submission, willingly, to bring us victory over sin, to present us before God as justified, holy, and righteous. Will you believe in him, believe in this gospel day after day? If you haven't believed in him before, will you place your faith in this Christ today? Will you give yourself to him? Will you worship him with all of your heart forever because of what he has done? And will you too humbly take Christ to those who need him? Will you give yourself, give your life so that others can come to know Christ as well? Will you share the good news of this truth with those who need to believe it so they can be victorious too? If there's ever a time to remember and to declare this good news of Christ, it is Christmas time. He is the reason for this season in the first place. And when you do declare this God-man Jesus Christ to others, please deliver this message of love in a way that represents the one you're sharing about. Don't share Christ with others in anger, judgment, resentment, or condemnation. Share about others, share to others in love. Do it humbly and submissively. Ultimately, seek to be like your Savior when you talk to others about your Savior. And know that when you speak of the one who was wounded, who suffered, know that you might suffer as well. When you seek to remember Christ and to live in light of that memory, you will be ridiculed. You will face some sort of trial or calamity. But we can do it knowing that our Savior has gone before us. And let's especially remember even our missionaries at this time of year serving throughout the world in places where they will face sufferings and trials and difficulties that we simply have not yet experienced here all for the sake of this gospel to get to the nations that God has always intended to save. And you could consider this morning as well if God might call you to that same life. I'd love to close by reading Peter's words from 1 Peter 2, 19 through 25. Here, referencing Isaiah 53, he makes clear that Jesus was our suffering servant and that we live in light of our suffering servant. He says, this is a gracious thing when mindful of God, one endures sorrows while suffering unjustly. For what credit is it if when you sin and are beaten for it, you endure? But if when you do good and suffer for it, you endure, this is a gracious thing in the sight of God. For to this you have been called because Christ also suffered for you, leaving you an example so that you might follow in his steps. He committed no sin. Neither was deceit found in his mouth. When he was reviled, he did not revile in return. When he suffered, he did not threaten, but continued entrusting himself to the one who judges justly. 
He himself bore our sins in his body on the tree that we might die to sin and live to righteousness. By his wounds, you have been healed. For you were straying like sheep, but have now returned to the shepherd and overseer of your souls. Let's pray together.